everybody, my name is Eric Arnell, and welcome to the second and final part of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories May podcast, all about sex. If you heard the first episode from a couple weeks ago, you know just how honest and surprising this month's stories are, and you can expect more of the same thing here. Uh, in this episode, comedian Andrew Bentley ponders the monetization of sexuality, lawyer Ed Soderbergh compares and contrasts sexy dice with his beloved D20, Inked Magazine writer Charlie Cannell talks about working at a sex shop. Uh, performer Mary Z shares her experience taking part in an all-nude play. Photographer Tim Manning judges his girlfriends through Star Wars. Writer Mike Galladay relates an early tale of love with a video gamer. And blogger Sean Boyle shares a touching story about romantic awakenings. As always, there's also plenty of musical accompaniment from myself and Mr. Boyd Hassler. Speaking of Dwight Hassler, if you're listening to this podcast today, it comes out. Today is Dwight's birthday, so find him on Facebook and tell him happy birthday, you jerks. Uh, Also, it's worth mentioning that a few weeks ago, me, Dwight, and a few other friends of ours took a trip to Los Angeles, and one of the things we did out there was attend a taping of the Douglas Movies podcast, which if you're a film nerd, you've probably heard of. Uh, Dwight ended up being the focus of the comedians on that show, including Jimmy Pardo, Paul Shear, and Bobcat Goldwaith for like five minutes. So here's just a, a brief clip of that. Paul Shear is here also. Okay, okay. Paul, Dwight's here. From The Price is Right? Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Dude, spin that wheel, spin that wheel. Pachinko master. Hey, did you get on, Dwight? No. So if you love movies or hilarity, check the whole episode out. Uh, listen to the podcast. It's really, really great. I'm only pimping it because I like it, and it's hilarious that they made fun of my friend. Okay, so to business. The next Nerdalogs Your Story show is happening this coming Sunday, May 20th, at the Upstairs Gallery in Chicago, 5219 North Clark Street. It takes place at 7 p.m. and is free, as always, plus it's BYOB. So I would come if I were you. The theme we're going with this month is family. So if you have any funny, touching, sad, or whatever stories about your familial unit, or whatever else the word family makes you think of, it doesn't have to be taken literally, come share them and you can be part of this podcast. Uh, Finally, here's my usual note about the donate button on the side of our website at yourstories.podbean.com. If you like the show, please consider tossing a few bucks our way to help cover web hosting and things like that. But thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, And please enjoy this episode. If you have any feedback uh, or, I don't know, want to sign up for a spot next month or whatever, comment on our blog or on the Nerdalogs Facebook page, which you can find at www.nerdalogs. That's N-E-R-D-O-L-O-G-U-E-S dot com. Later, guys.
Oh, so this is like sometimes you just gotta be like real sensitive, right? Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. so this one's for the ladies. This is the song. This is gross. You don't always have to fuck her hard. In fact, sometimes that's not right to do. Sometimes you got to make some love. Because I did, I did say I was chronically we're, single. Yeah, we're not fun yeah. man. <laughs> I am an atheist. I hope that's okay. <laughs> I smell a sitcom. <laughs> uh, anyway, Andrew Bentley. Okay, so I'm just going to preface this uh, by saying that usually I, I write everything I read here, like the day of, because... Um, I don't want to think on it too much. Uh, this time, I may have cut it a little close. Usually, I like to at least be able to do a second draft to kind of focus it. Uh, not so much today. And to top it all off, all I've had today is coffee and grapefruit juice and chocolate-flavored protein. Um, so, I'm just looking over this. I, I'm not quite sure where I was going with it, but uh, I wrote it, and now you all have to listen to it. Just maybe don't take it super seriously. (laughs) Okay. By this point in our lives, I think that we all realize we've been lied to. 
by Hollywood and by the rest of pop culture, that great gangling, multifarious organism squatting upon our collective unconscious like the bloated kraken out of a trite political cartoon. <laughs> we know that high school, contrary to its popular representation as a steamy quagmire of Caligulan decadence and Machiavellian intrigue, is nothing more than a quartet of decreasingly awkward experiments, serving primarily to vent the noxious waste products of our pubescence within a safe, controlled environment, while our voices deep drop, our breasts rise, and we look forward dreamily to the steamy quagmire we're so sure college will prove to be. College, depending where you went, might actually have been a bit like its popular film portrayals, but I think we should keep in mind that this is almost certainly a case of recursive mimicry rather than an honest display of sociological spontaneity. More importantly, if you went to one of these institutions where sexually charged hijinks are the order of the day and heaving breasts sway like pert blazons from the ramparts of the student union, then I have little to say to you tonight. I'm speaking to the art school kids, the, the small campus, and those who attended a party school but occupied a lower, less cinematic social strata, slinking through the dark alleys of the quad with books and portfolios clutched to their chests like the motley rags of some leprous mendicant. <laughs> you are my people, and if we are one, then you no doubt watched the cool and markedly beautiful with a certain detached pity as they trooped past, feeling very much like David Bowie at an IMF meeting. <laughs> How brave we were, we coffeehouse Templar, we starving artists who lived our lives to the sweet piping symphony only we could hear. How free. Meanwhile, the marketing majors chortled between sips of Blue Moon and Arizona green tea because they, of course, knew better. Sure, the rigid hegemony of the mainstream might have vanished down the bearded maw of Generation X, but sales of ore is a vacuum, and through the wonder of sneakerization, tempered in the blood of the Starbucks generation, means there is no such thing as an unreachable demographic. The traditional parables of Californian opulence remained, but they were joined on the stage by narrations more palatable to the unwashed Macintosh bohemians, complete with spokesmodels, distinct brands, Nike, Reebok, Kardashian, Deschanel. In the last decade, Quirk has rolled off the assembly line into the hearts of millions of the tragically misunderstood. So, what the hell is my point? that we've been very neatly partitioned. In Animal House, in Revenge of the Nerds, the outsiders were an underclass of rascalous brigands, centaurs at the feast who dared to carry off the women of the oppressor and thumb their noses at the jocks and squares of homogenous frat boys. Now, now we've got centaur porn. Sorority girls and Clark Street clubbers may rest at ease, knowing they have faded into a distinct and alien cohort, free from the covetous condescension of the creative thinkers. Instead, I stalk an entirely different mirage to the desert, one which, through the magic of focused advertising and demography, seems infinitely more genuine and attainable. It's not, of course. Uh, there are a limited supply of inscrutably free-spirited minxes and sultry Parisian ballerinas, and they're busy pairing off with men whose qualifications go beyond my undying desire to bone Parker Posey. <laughs> it hardly seems fair. My aspirations aren't superficial, like the MBA who hopes to leverage his salary against the acquisition of a buxom blonde. No, 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 no. I, I have no delusions about entitlement. Uh, all I ask for is a, a willowy, blue-eyed brunette who will devotedly love me for my off-kilter genius. Well, that, and the indulgence of referring to my particular brand of socially maladroit pedantry as off-kilter genius. <laughs> That's all. I, I'm pretty sure the world owes me that. I mean... Michael Sarah wouldn't lie to me, right? <laughs> He's one of us. Whoever we are. Thank you. Do you guys know how you know Andrew Smart? That's the first draft. <laughs>
Presumably written with no thesaurus. What the fuck, Andrew? That was that was awesome. Um, this has come to Andrew. I actually uh, knock on the door. Like we need another one. Okay. Uh, Ed Soderberg. I have to follow that. Jesus Christ. All right. Um, Use big words. <laughs> so my story is really good in concept. It has sex and Dungeons and Dragons, which you never really see put together. I'm going to do that tonight. Uh, in execution, however, I'm probably going to stumble all over myself. And everything. You're going to do great. Anyway, it's another ex-girlfriend story. So um, I pretty much from the age of 17 to 25 always had some girlfriend. I was a serial monogamist. And the story is always the same. Um, we meet, she makes the mistake of dating me, I guess, and over time she realizes just how nerdy I am, that I'm not wearing it on my sleeve fashionably, like, no, I really, really am that nerdy. So I had a girlfriend, let's just say sometime in my 20s, because I'm not going to use her name just in case, but you know who you are, um, <laughs> who... Uh, had a real problem with me wanting to play D&D with my friends. Now, I hadn't played before because it's, it's actually really hard to get into a group. And, um, you know, I just, uh, a spot had opened up. I'd always wanted to do it. You know, it was sort of a, I saw it as a potential creative outlet for me. And I was talking about it with her because, you know, you're supposed to talk with your significant others about things that you want to do. And she was not at all amused. And she took a very kind of, uh, kind of a patronizing view of it, like, Oh, this is just you, like, thinking you want to do it, but it's, that's just what kids do. It's not, you know, no, all the guys want to do it with are five years older than me. You don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, so, at some point, she, uh, she comes over to my apartment, and she has uh, a bag, and she has a present for me. And she tells me, I've got a present for you. I'm kind of excited. And she, and she says, yeah, it's some dice. So I'm thinking, like, is this kind of a... Um, is he telling me it's okay to play Dungeons & Dragons? And she pulls out these big, furry sex dice. <laughs> D6s, both of them. <laughs> and they're connected. And on, on one of the die, it says an action, like lick or spank or, you know, etc. And on the other, it has a body part. So you would just roll these dice, and presumably you come up with, like, lick butt or spank nipple <laughs> or something. Um... And I tried to explain to her, like, this isn't... And, and, and she called, she said, like, oh, we can do some role-playing. And I tried to explain to her, well, that's not really role-playing, that's just kind of a random result from rolling dice. And she's like, well, that's exactly what you want to do. No, it's not what I want to do, because D&D is, you're choosing, you're choosing things that you want to do, and then the likelihood of a certain outcome is determined, um, you know, by mathematical probability and the, the parameters you've set with your character to begin with. And, you know, that... Right over her head. Um, <laughs> she's like, no, I, I thought you'd like it. Well, it's it's not the same. So I knew, and she she kind of got um, kind of high on her horse about it. How she's she's like trying to help me out, help me out somehow by doing this and uh, letting me sort of play D and D with these stupid. None of them were twenty sided. You know, just two <laughs> six sided sex dice. Um, and so, of course, the best way to shut her up was just to, uh, you know, we start going at it. <laughs> and something, something happens to me that had never happened to me before. It, my jaw starts aching. I just 
can't keep doing what I'm doing, if you can imagine what I'm doing. And so I think, oh, well, you know, maybe I, I don't know, it's, something's wrong with my jaw, so let's switch to penis. And, uh, so I do that, but that doesn't work either. And I start really worrying, because that's the first time ever, you know, I'm in my something 20s, and it's not working, and I'm kind of freaking out, and I'm thinking about it, but what I'm thinking about more is, she didn't understand why I wanted to play D&D, she thought it was this horribly antisocial thing, which is, it's actually the most social thing you can do, I think, um, and I had my first bout of, uh, psychosomatically induced sexual frustration. I just could not perform, because my girlfriend wanted to play with sex dice, and I wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so then we broke up two weeks later. That's my story. Wow. Ed, thanks for sharing, man. Uh, Andrew, you got something to say? Yeah, no, uh, from Ed's uh, contribution just now on the mix of random generation and uh, sex. I'd like to quote from the first edition rules of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, one of Gary Gygax's great contributions, the uh, Harlot Random Encounter Table. Here. Uh, it says, Harlot encounters can be with brazen strumpets or haughty courtesans, thus making it difficult for the party to distinguish each encounter for what it is. In fact, the encounter could be with a dancer only prostituting herself as it pleases her, an elderly madam, or even a pimp. In addition to the offering of the usual fare, the harlot is 30% likely to know valuable information, 15% likely to make something up in order to gain a reward, and 20% likely to be or work with a thief. You may find it useful to use the subtable below to see which sort of harlot encounter takes place. And the subtable is as follows. 1 to 10, slovenly troll. 11 to 25, brazen strumpet. 26 to 35, cheap trollop. 36 to 50, typical streetwalker. 51 to 65, saucy tart. 66 to 75, wanton wench. 76 to 85, expensive doxy. 86 to 90, haughty courtesan. 91 to 92, aged madam. 93 to 94, wealthy procurus. 95 to 98, sly pimp. 99 to 100, rich panderer. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Where do you think he got those percentile from? Like, do you think he actually Here's conducted research? research? Yeah. Well, 20% of the women I meet on the street are going to steal my clothes and money, so... Uh, Charlie... Uh, I'm sorry. Canal. Charlie Canal is up next. I almost said I, I was trying. Guys, don't say Charlie Connell. It's Canal. I was warned, sir. When I first moved to Chicago, I was met with the harsh reality that we need to get a job. And I lived a block or two away from a video store and decided to apply for sort of silly reasons. Like most of my generation, all my life choices made in my early 20s were heavily influenced by pop culture. And in this case, by Kevin Smith's Clarks. I wanted to be Randall. (laughs) A week or so later, I got called in for an interview. It went really well. And just when I thought that the guy interviewing me was going to give me the job, got a very serious look on his face. 
Now, you seem like you'd be perfect for the job, Seth. I need to ask a few questions that might make you a little uncomfortable. (laughs) I had no idea what was coming. I just nodded meekly. He goes on. How do you feel about nudity? (laughs) Fine, I guess. Am I going to be naked? (laughs) What kind of video story is this? And then he laughs, and he says, no, 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 I'm sorry, I always handle that, I asked that the wrong way. We're hiring for the all-adult location right down the street. <laughs> Can you handle working in an environment surrounded by videos like this? At this point, he held up a box that had the angriest-looking man I've ever seen, with by far the largest dick I've ever seen. <laughs> And this was my introduction into the porn industry. <laughs> I would go on to spend four long and hard years working at Nationwide Video. The store, it was basically like a photo negative of your average independent video store. And it had a really small closet-like section of general videos and an expansive gigantic floor of porn (laughs) and 10% of the inventory had to be non-adult to get the permit for the neighborhood we were in so it was just videos from all the other stores in the chain that they didn't want anymore so we had an entire shelf of airheads Directly below that, we had an entire shelf of the Avengers. It was wonderful. But uh, every once in a while, someone would wander in from the street and look at the videos we had, explain how horrible our selection was, and we'd have to explain. No, we're basically a front. The real stuff was all upstairs. They would laugh, point out that that's odd, and then go upstairs and not come down for an hour. (laughs) It's hard to describe just how disorienting the porn section was the first time I was there. Because I've never been squeamish about porn. When I was 13, I would spend my Friday nights watching Scrambled Spice Channel, just trying to make out the shape of a boob. And you'd just, it'd be like purple and squiggly. Oh, nipple. So like, I was always okay with this, but when I saw the sheer volume of pornography, like, I just didn't know what to do. And it just, like, it took your breath away. You were like, how could it be this much porn in the world? <laughs> and uh, we were, like, in Boys Town, like, Clara, was it Clarendon and Irving Park? So, yeah, it was split between about between straight and gay about halfway through the store. And there's a transsexual section that would sometimes be on the gay side and then six months later would get moved to the straight side <laughs> and then we'd go back. No one ever explained why. I never got an answer to that. But in the middle, you would sit at a counter and monitor the security, the security cameras. And next to us was a life-size statue of the alien from Aliens, but it had a corset and panties on. It was pretty hot. But uh, it was during my second shift monitoring the uh, monitors that uh, I understood that this job was a little different. 
I saw a guy in the corner of the room, and I thought I was catching a shoplifter for the first time. <laughs> but then I realized that he wasn't struggling to put something into his pants. And then he was struggling to take something out of his pants. I caught my first masturbator. Told my manager, called the police, and in two minutes, this is in Chicago, two minutes, the cops were there, handcuffing the guy, dragging him down the stairs without laying him put his dick away. It turns out that we always gave free porn to the cops, so they would show up really quickly whenever we called. But uh, when you get right down to it, working at the, video, at the porn store was pretty much the same as any other retail job. It was just the subtle differences that made it a little different. Like, instead of chatting up your regulars about, you know, a new sandwich on the menu, you would tell them that Booty Talk 37 had just come in, and we knew that's what they were into. <laughs> you know, and when lazily staring at the calendar to find when you're working, you wouldn't even notice the picture featuring porn star Belladonna putting a baseball bat where you should never, ever put a baseball bat. <laughs> and you would become so desensitized. Like, after a month, I didn't even notice these things. I, I thought Bukaki was something everyone knew about. <laughs> don't look it up if you don't know. Just leave that one alone. But, you know, eventually I realized that I had achieved my dream of becoming Randall. I could spend my entire shift listening to punk rock, <laughs> yell at customers that gave me shit, and the management always agreed with me. They told us to tell if anyone asked for the manager, tell them you're the fucking manager. Got people shut up real quickly. But, you know, and no one cared. And we would screw around with coworkers, break fluorescent light bulbs over each other. It was just like any other job. We even had a bowling team that we called the Smut Peddlers. It was the perfect job for a college kid trying to stay away from responsibility for as long as possible. Although, it made for some real awkward conversation at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Charlie Canal, everybody, give it up. Um, I, I do wonder, do you, like, in your opinion, does the Booty Talk series follow the Star Trek rule where the evens are good and the odds are like... <laughs> I don't know if you heard that the Lep in the Hood is here to do no good. This has been kind of a one-sided show as far as it's all been men talking. Uh, no longer. Mary. Mary Zemitis, everybody. <laughs> Just so you know, this is about you're going to a strip club, right? That was the condition we agreed on. Yeah, VIPs. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Speaking of saucy courtesans. <laughs> this night's been a, a lot of nerdy guys talking about their dicks. <laughs> so, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, this nerdy girl would like to talk about her tits and pussy, so. Uh, <laughs> So, Zach and I looked into each other's eyes. We were so nervous. We've been talking about it for weeks. 
and it was finally happening. He looked into my eyes and said, Are you ready to do this, Mary? And I said, As ready as I'll ever be. He took off his boxer shorts. I unsnapped my bra and took off my panties. And then we walked on stage into an audience of 150 paying theater goers. Um, In the fall of 2010, I was in a play called Leaves of Grass. Uh, It was an all-nude production of... It was an interpretation of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. by far the most pretentious thing I've ever been involved with. <laughs> One of the craziest things I've ever done, and quite potentially the stupidest thing I've ever done. Um, this was a show, uh, this guy Jeremy Bloom, he was a director from New York, and he was in town directing Candide at the Goodman, and on his off hours he decided to put up this production that he had done in New York, where it was just a bunch of naked people reciting and performing Walt Whitman poetry. (laughs) And I saw an audition for it, and I was like, well, I'm bored, so (laughs) I will do this. And I'd also also recently lost a bunch of weight, so I was like, yeah, I'm going to show this off. (laughs) And as some of you uh, may have seen in a previous Nerdalogs story, I used to be really religious, so I feel ya. Uh, and essentially, my church kind of said, sex is bad, and if you're a woman, you're the reason why men are tempted into sex, and your body is an instrument of sin. That's the cliff notes of my church-going experience in high school. So being in this nude show was kind of, like, sexuality isn't just about sex, I think it's your body is also a big part of it. So for me, beyond having sex for the first time and all that good stuff, a big part of me of kind of reclaiming my sexuality was being in a play where I had to be fully accepting of my body. Um, And Walt Women's Poetry is actually all about that. It's all about how beautiful and pure the naked human body is. So let's do this. Uh, Enough about the show. Let's talk about me being naked. Um, Some fun things about the show. Uh... The director's lingo for getting naked was called getting in costume. Because uh, for him, like, us being with our clothes on was our non-play selves, but taking our clothes off was us getting into character. Um, and there, being, in, being in this process, uh, there are a few conclusions that I've uh, made about sex, gender, and body image uh, being in this process. The first thing is it's way more stressful for women to be naked than for men to get naked, in my opinion. Okay, let me, let me, let me explain this. Um, men and women both worry about size, but men just worry about the size of their dicks. Women, when they get naked, worry about everything else. Uh, like, you're, a woman's genitalia is the last thing she's worried about when she's naked, like, when we, were, when we were getting ready to do the show and to get naked on stage, like, every woman, like, we weren't worried about our vaginas. We were worried, like, about breasts, breast size, breast movement, thighs, uh, cellulite, the jiggle factor, like, all of these other things. Whereas all the men, like, 
The only thing they had to worry about was people seeing their dick. But then once, like, once your dick's out, your dick's out. (laughs) Like, people find out what your dick looks like pretty fast. But throughout the whole production, like, women were kind of worried about how the rest of their bodies looked. Uh, So men, little tip, naked with a woman, tell her she looks nice. Tell her she looks beautiful. It'll, it'll, It'll really calm her down. Uh, the second thing that I learned from being in the show is that old men love being naked. Uh, <laughs> we mostly had like young, nubile, twenty-something white actors in the show, but there were a few men that were in their sixties and seventies that were in the show, and they didn't give a shit. Like us young people, we were so nervous about getting naked, and like we had. You know, we're in the prime of our bodies. Like, they're never going to look this good again. But we were so nervous about people judging us. And the old men didn't care. Um, <laughs> like, we, we would get... About ten minutes before showtime is when we were supposed to get into costume. And we would wait till the last possible second to take our clothes off. But the older men... They'd be, like, just hanging out, like, a half hour before the show started. Like, I'd be trying... I remember, like, one time I was, like, trying to eat a sandwich. And, like, this dude just, like, came up to me and was like, Samari, how was your day? I'm like, oh, my God. No. Uh, We called him Anteater because his dick looks like an Anteater. And finally, the third lesson that I learned about sex and sexuality from being in the show is taking your clothes off is the hardest part. Being naked on stage is actually pretty easy. It's The whole process is kind of like ripping off a band-aid. Um, it's the anticipation that gives you the most anxiety. But once we were on stage naked, you, we were so busy having fun that we didn't even notice. And I think that has a lot to do with sex as well. Like, virginity is, like, that first time is hyped up so much. And you spend so much time worrying about it. But really, afterwards, it's just all about having fun. Uh, So, Zach and I took our clothes off. We got over that initial hump of anxiety. And we went on stage have a great time. Thanks, guys. Mary, thank you very much uh, for sharing that. Tim Manning. Mine is super, super short, and uh, I've been thinking the whole night about um, how this theme kind of relates to my identity as a nerd, and I think I just figured it out like 10 minutes ago. My last relationship... Well, actually, let me back up. Every major relationship I've had, I have vetted that girl through Star Wars. Like, (laughs) you have got to watch at least the original trilogy before we can go any further. You have to at least know where I'm coming from, know my kind of cultural references, and then we can go further. Whether you like them or not, you at least understand what I'm talking about. My last relationship that was a fucking nightmare for three years was terrible. It ended horrifically... Um, I probably should have gone through some sort of therapy to get over it. Um, I just realized, watching that movie 
with that last act, or watching those movies, those last, that last X, I realized I should have seen this as a warning sign when her favorite character was Anakin Skywalker from the prequels. Especially, like, the darker version. And I just figured it out because that's what she was looking for. She was attracted to, like, whiny, um, self-important shitheads instead of, like, the nice guy. Instead of, like, the Obi-Wan or, like, um... I don't know, just any of the nicer people in that, that universe, she was attracted to the shitty, self-important, power-hungry douchebags. And I should have seen that as a warning sign and just, like, got the hell out of there, and I did not. And, um, yeah, that's, um, that's... I, I should have used Star Wars as a way to <laughs> kind of gauge my relationship, and it could have saved me a lot of trouble. That's... I think the lead of that story is that Nerdalogs helped him come to a realization. Like, go off, guys. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, but th- thank you very much for sharing. Uh, Mike Galladay is going to close out the stories. This is a short story you wrote, what, last year you said? Yeah. So this is like a fictional piece, maybe. Okay, so actually, originally I was going to be that guy that didn't do the sex thing because I had like no fucking stories, honestly. Uh, not because I'm a virgin or anything, just because like I couldn't think of anything cool or funny or anything like that. So I was gonna originally tell a story about a retarded kid and a frog. It's a really funny story. I'll tell it <laughs> later if you guys want to hear it. But I remembered one story that might be kind of cool. Um, so when I was like 20, I was uh, at his math class, and there was this chick that I was like really into. Um, my like uh, requirements are pretty low. It's like, is she ugly? No. Um, does she have tits? Yeah. Okay, we can go forward with this. Um, <laughs> as it turned out, we would talk, and we kind of hit it off, and she also was in the video game. So I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> so we would, like, hang out and shit, and it was pretty cool. We'd like, play video games and stuff. And she had this thing where we'd be playing games, and if I was, like, kicking her ass or something, she would, like, take off her shirt and just play topless. <laughs> and nothing would go forward from there. So... <laughs> Hardcore fucking mixed signals for one thing, but I would drive to her house twenty minutes damn near every day because eventually I was gonna see tits. Um, you know. Anyway, so we hang out for like a few months, and then she's like, "Hey, you know, next time you come over, we're gonna try something a little different." I'm like, "Okay, I have no idea what that would mean because I had like no kind of any sexual anything going on twenty. I yeah. Anyway, um." So I go over there, and she's like, she decides she wants to give me a blowjob. Now, I'm like, well, fuck yeah, all right. So <laughs> we, get, we, we get going, and, you know, first few minutes, it's like, all right, this is, fuck yeah, this is, I'm probably going to lose my virginity tonight. This is fucking awesome. And it, it keeps going, and going, and going, and I got bored, <laughs> very bored. So it comes in close to about an hour of this happening. Yeah, and I'm like, is this how these things go? Is, I guess I wasn't really missing much. So, I mean, I can't just be like, hey, you know what, stop. So I'm sitting there, and luckily my phone rings. It's, it's my mom, because I'm 20, and I still have curfew. And keep in mind, she's still doing what she's doing. And I'm on the phone with my mom. <laughs> and she's like, hey, Mike, where are you? Uh, I'm still over at my friend's house. Are you planning on coming on anytime soon? Yeah, but I'm kind of busy right now. <laughs> she's like, you should really be coming home. 
okay, okay. So I hang up and I go, that was my mom. I actually got to go home now. So, yeah, yeah. It was like the worst blowjob ever. So I'm like, I, 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 I don't want to be nice about it because it wasn't going to go anywhere. But, like, I got out of there and she told everybody. And that probably led to me being a virgin for two years. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Found out 22, I don't suck at sex, so that's cool. <laughs> Sean Boyle. Yay. Quick sidebar. When I was 17, my mom asked me if I wanted anything special for my 18th birthday. And I honestly told her, I want someone to take me to a strip club. And she arranged it. I write a blog called LessonsForAvery.com. Uh, basically, it's just lessons for my hypothetical um, genderless child Avery. And uh, when Eric told me about this subject, I, I realized this was going to be a challenging subject to kind of cover in one story. And it ended up becoming a trilogy that I called the Horny Trinity. <laughs> and I'm going to read you the third final piece of that. Um, part one is called Pews of Desire. I examined my earliest uh, experiences with puberty. Part two is called the pelvic compass, <laughs> focused on the social dynamics of courtship and seduction and how terrible I was at both. Um, so part two left off with this sentiment. I needed to find my own genuine identity that would be worth dating. That is precisely what I did going into high school. I stopped chasing Tao and focused on my own personality. The little socializing I did was conducted without ulterior motives and was centered around my passion for heavy metal music and video games. So freshman year quickly passed by and to my knowledge, not a single woman knew I had a penis. <laughs> Until the beginning of my sophomore year when a complete stranger slipped a note on my desk and it said, my friend thinks you're cute. If you ask her out, she will say yes. A few weeks later, I was in her friend's basement and I reached my curious hands up her shirt and fondled her breasts. I liked this. <laughs> and I hoped it was making her just as happy. But, but when I touched her vagina, I realized that is not what happiness feels like. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> Let me, I'll spell it out. It was dry. Oh. I'm, glad I, I'm glad I spelled that out then. Right. So later that evening, she brought out photo albums and shared stories about her fondest childhood memories. I wondered what part of her body could I touch next. And as my erection subsided, I actually started listening to her stories. I eventually, I eventually figured out that what she wanted was a partner, not an enthusiastic diddle buddy. Two lonely years later, fortune struck again. I intercepted an online chat message on my friend's computer. 
He assured me he had no interest in her and gave me the green light to chat her up. The screen name was something like Metallica Chick. So all I knew about her was a yearbook photo and that she had an interest in heavy metal. And since I was in a heavy metal band, I figured how could she not like me? So we started dating soon after that first chat. And this time I did it right from the beginning. I listened to her stories. I smiled warmly when she looked into my eyes and I kept my pervy hands to myself. After our official first date, we spent the evening in a little park where I successfully escalated my way into her heart. We laid on a grassy hill looking at the stars and she took my hand into hers. She placed her head against my shoulder and smiled at me in a way that seemed like she had been with me for an eternity. We shared our first kiss that very moment and I knew immediately something I had never known before. This is love. I couldn't fully understand or rationalize this new feeling, but I was aware that something different was happening to me. We went on a spring picnic date and found a spot near the lake where we wouldn't be seen. We spent hours in our private garden of hormones, and when I felt how happy I made her vagina feel, I told her that I loved her. She happily agreed to be my first date ever for a school dance. It was a cliché dream come true as I brought her a flower, spoke awkwardly with her parents, and danced all night in her arms. I remember thinking she seemed a little sad that night, and I knew it was my job to hold her close and make her feel safe. I didn't sexualize her that night, as I knew she needed a supportive partner to talk openly with. I was happy to be that man. So the next date, she was back to her regular horny self and gave me my first hand job <laughs> that memorably concluded when she said, Ew, it's everywhere. <laughs> our, young love, our young love had also spilled out into the school hallways. <laughs> now, that's your guys' fault. <laughs> As we passed our special binder of love notes back and forth five days a week. In those notes were three passages that I will never forget. The first reference, one of the greatest mistakes I've ever made. She wrote, I wanted to sneak in the bathroom and give you your first blowjob, but you locked the door and I didn't want anyone to hear me go in. I replied, Shit! <laughs> I will never lock a bathroom door ever again. <laughs> she wrote back with the second unforgettable passage. My parents will be out of town tonight. Come over and be my first. I'm ready. Bring condoms. <laughs> I was delirious with excitement, and I ditched school to go condom shopping. <laughs> I spent the rest of that day in my room lo- trying on condoms. <laughs> And watching, the, and watching the clock count down towards the end of my childhood. I got a phone call from a whispering girlfriend telling me to come over and wait silently in her backyard. After one hour, then two, finally, nearly three hours later, her back door opened. She stands in a dark laundry room with wet hair, and she drops her bathrobe to, drops her bathrobe to reveal a sexy skirt and blouse outfit. Before I could express how much this was worth every trial and tribulation I had ever endured, 
she tells me the bad news. Her little brother was still awake and in his room, right next to hers, with his door open. She devised a plan that would wear her bathrobe and calmly walk into her room as if I'm her. Then 15 minutes later, she would walk in her room and her brother would think she got dressed and was walking around the house already. We looked nothing alike, and I feared the worst. I followed her direction exactly, and it actually worked. I lit a bunch of candles, and we lost our virginity. I was loving, passionate, and gentle as I climaxed quickly. I held her, I held her in my arms until she fell asleep, and I snuck out leaving her a love note on the nightstand. It was the greatest night of my entire high school career. And I was off and I was too happy to even sleep that night. On her next date, she came over to my house wearing the ugliest green velvet blouse I had ever seen. But its oddness turned me on, and I looked forward to unbuttoning it. But I could tell she was in a bad mood, and I spent about an hour relentlessly kissing a half-interested partner. I took out the condom, and she ignored the gesture, and proceeded to give me my first ever blowjob instead. At the time, I thought this was amazing. Looking back, it was really just a patchover. The next day, I got the third unforgettable notebook passage when she wrote, Let's take a break. I wrote her a long letter to declare my supportive intentions, to endure this break and start over where we left off when she is ready. I figured we are in love. How can a little break possibly threaten what we have? I went to our meeting spot, and she was not there. We eventually crossed paths, and as I approached her, she was visibly holding back tears, and she kept walking away. I discovered that she was back with an ex-boyfriend. And even worse than that, he is actually the guy she really lost her virginity with before she had ever met me. The next day, I approached her with a large envelope filled with our professional school dance photos ripped to pieces, along with our binder of love letters, with my autograph on the cover, and with a note below that saying, you can sell this when I'm a rich and famous rock star. (laughs) I wish that part wasn't true. (laughs) When I found out who her ex was, I remembered seeing him at that school dance, where he said a hello to us while we were dancing. I connected the dots and saw all the signs I had overlooked, that she wasn't in love with me anymore. I created a defensive fiction and and lived in it willingly. She knew how much I loved her, but I didn't know that she stopped loving me. You see, nobody wants to get hurt, but even more so, nobody wants to do the hurting. That is what makes this difficult. Everyone wants to be the victorious hero of their own love story, but that story is only worth telling because you never know how it will end or who it will end with. It takes a lot of mistakes, failures, and dark days before you can write the words happily ever after. The end. so touching you guys it's making me feel stuff knock it off <laughs> no, yeah, I, I shouldn't have chosen those words I'm sorry everybody and we're gonna give you I mean I think this is like the best romantic song that there is so we're just gonna just gonna lay this down 
trying to be rude But hey pretty girl I'm feeling you The way you do the things you do Remind me of my Lexus coupe That's why I'm all up in your grill Trying to get you to a hotel You must be a football coach The way you got me playing the field So baby give me that doo doo Let me get that beep beep Running our hands through my fro Bouncing on 24s It's the remix to ignition Hot and fresh out the kitchen Mama rolling that body Got every man in here wishing Sipping on coke and rum I'm like so what I'm drunk It's the freaking weekend Baby I'm about to have me some fun Murder, she wrote. Once I get you out and close, privacy is on the door. But still, they can hear you screaming more. Girl, I'm feeling what you're feeling. No more hope and wishing. I'm about to take my key and stick it in the ignition. Give me that doot doot. Let me get that beep beep. Running her hands through my throat. Bouncing on 24s. It's the remix to ignition. Hot and fresh out the kitchen. Mama rolling that body. Got every man in your wishing. Sipping on coke and rum. I'm like so up and drunk. It's the freaking weekend, baby. I'm about to have me some fun. Crystal popping in the stretch navigator. We got food everywhere. As if the party was catered. We got fellas to my left. Thanks a lot, guys. We appreciate it very much.